Good morning, Sterling. Oh, nice. Good, warm reception first up. Love it. It's uh, fantastic to be with you here this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Joe. And uh, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Mark. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. We've got a really cool story we're going to be reading. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29. So if you have your Bibles with you, you turn there. Um, otherwise, they'll be on the screen um, behind me, in front of you. It's, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It goes as follows. And when they came to the disciples, and we're talking about when they, it's talking about Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were on the mount uh, up in the Transfiguration, coming down, so that's who the, the disciples that they're referring to of the nine that were left behind. So when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. <clears throat> and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought, to you, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked the disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So Jesus is asking the disciples, why are you guys arguing? And the dad is not having any of that conversation to continue. He can see the desperation in his father. He just jumps in, cuts in, and says, I've brought my son. He's in a really bad spot. And the disciples haven't been able to do anything about it. So he, he does, this isn't the reason why they're arguing, but he, the, the dad is just so desperate, he's not having any of this conversation. He just wants to dive straight in and, and get straight to the point. And, and he, Jesus here, answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Jesus is frustrated. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, the boy's father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw the crowd come, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out. And the boy was like a corpse. And uh, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out but anything, uh, by anything but prayer. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we uh, want to ask you, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, if you would move among us. Lord, we desire not to hear from me, but what we desire is to hear from your word and from your mouth. And so we ask, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, that you would make much of Christ in our hearts, that, Lord, you'd be gracious to us and reveal a little bit more about Jesus to us and stir us up in faith so that we might pursue and live a life for Christ, we ask. And so, Lord, we, we can't do anything to make this happen today. 
But we just have to appeal to you and ask that you'd be gracious to us as your children, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we find ourselves in a rather interesting story, to say the least, right? But we've got to see that there's a stark contrast from where we've just come to where we've arrived. And we've come from the glorious Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory being revealed, and suddenly we enter into a scene where Satan is present and ruling over a small little boy. We leave the company of Elijah and Moses, and we arrive into the company of uh, the disciples and the unbelieving argumentative scribes. We go from hearing the Father's voice saying, this is my son who is well pleased, into a scene of suffering, into a scene of pain and sorrow. We have the disciples arguing with the scribes about why they have the authority to do this. We have a father who is bitterly disappointed uh, and his hope has been shattered that his son has not been able to be healed. We have disciples who are very confused and probably embarrassed that they haven't been able to cast out this demon. And we have this little boy who is suffering terribly at the hand of the demonic, uh, who is central to the story, yet somehow has been forgotten by those religious people who are arguing about authority and other stuff. This is the scene that Jesus enters into. And for those of us who read this, we must feel the stark contrast that is happening here. We've gone from glorious things into really sad realities. And as we consider this, we've got to realize that this is a picture of the Christian life. That at times we will have the wonderful privilege of being able to see with more clarity the glory of Christ. That God in His grace and His mercies will seem to peel back the curtains of heaven so that we might be able to see Christ a little bit more clearly than we had before. And in those moments we are going to be stirred and overwhelmed by this great sense of love that this God has for us. We are going to be in awe of the fact that we get to call this God our Father and He calls us His Son and, and daughters, that we get to be in, in, in absolutely struck by the fact that we have the privilege of being in His presence and experience the jubilation that comes with that. These are moments that we as Christians long for. These are moments that we as Christians desire that we get to spend time in the tangible presence of God. And when we have that, we get to come alongside the psalmist in Psalm 84 verse 2. He says these words, My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. And when he graciously gives us these moments, we get to say, like he does a little bit later in that same psalm, oh, for one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Why? because in your presence is the fullness of joy. We get to long for these moments. This is what we desire. This is what the soul of a Christian needs. It needs the presence of God. And I've got to ask you this morning, do you desire that? Is there a longing in your heart as I speak about being in the tangible presence of God that you would want that and you want that now, to be able to see Him with a little bit more clarity? And some of you might answer, well, Joe, actually, I, I don't want, if I had to check my heart, I don't have that desire in me, but I want it. And while that is certainly not ideal, it's, a, it's not a bad place to be in. And if you're going, I don't have that, but I want to have a desire for more of Him, we get to come to God and ask Him to please place that desire in us. Go to Him and say, Lord, I need this desire in me. Please give it to me. 
And for those of you who are going, yes, I want that. I, I want to have that presence. I have that desire in me. I, I want to see him with a little bit more clarity. The way we are able to get these experiences is by coming to God in prayer and asking that he gives it to us. Church, these glorious moments that we talk about aren't things that we are able to conjure up ourselves. There's no formula that I can give you this morning, a five-step plan to experience in the presence of God more fully, and He will give it to you. There isn't those five-step plan that can guarantee that for you this morning. It is something that we have to come to God and ask Him that He would graciously give more of Himself to us. Now, in the Christian church, we have tried in the past in, uh, to, to imitate these things. We try to make it happen through production and entertainment and excitement. And, and, and we hope that those excitements and those emotional feelings that we have would bring in an usher in the presence of God, but rather they don't because God has to graciously give it to us, not that we can make it happen. And these moments of exuberation and joy that we can get from excitement and production are poor substitutes for the presence of God. They will not satisfy, they will not give us what our soul needs because our soul does not need excitement. What our soul needs is God, more of Him. And, and those moments that are exciting, we can't truly come around and say, well, that day was better than a thousand elsewhere because the world can offer those excitement moments. But the true presence of God is something that we have to long for and also ask Him to give. But we have this wonderful hope that He's a loving Father, and when we desire and ask for Him, that He will not withhold Himself from us. So we come with an expectation, as we've been asking this morning in our songs, Lord, come and be among us. But I say all of that because while those moments will happen to us, and I hope they do, and I hope we, we come with a longing in our hearts as a body and co uh, corporately, but also as individuals who have these moments in your own personal time with the Lord, you, you can get them there as well. That when we do have these moments, we must not be shocked and caught off by the fact that as we leave this wonderful place in the presence of God, as we head out to the week, that we will be faced with trials and with suffering. That the Christian walk is ultimately going to lead us into moments of difficulty that we will face practical challenges in our lives. And, and I know that sometimes it's called me of God when I've had these wonderful moments where God has graciously shown me more of Christ that I think I'm going to be in this spot forever. And then moments later, I find myself in trial and wonder how did I get from here to here? And then I start to question in my heart, has God abandoned me? Has, has, have I done something wrong to chase away the presence of God? But what this text shows us from the experience of the disciples and, and of Jesus is that we can go from moments of glory and in an instant, in a day, we can be in a really difficult scene. And that should not catch us off guard as believers. But what these moments of, of, uh, of glory and these moments of seeing God more clearly and being in His presence more clearly, what it does is that this strengthens us. It encourages us. It, it helps us to have a clearer perspective of what is valuable and what is not. That we are able to see as we see Christ that He is our treasure, that He is the thing that we value, and the things of the world aren't nearly as important as we once thought they were. 
There's a clarity of focus that comes for a Christian in this moment. There is, a, there is an overwhelming sense of he loves me and he is with me and he is for me rather than as we enter into trials that where is God, these moments strengthen us for those situations. Does that make sense? It gives us faith to be able to live out those difficult moments that we need to get through. Faith is required for the practical challenges of life. Hear me here. Faith is required for the practical challenges that we face in life. And it's something that disciples seem to lack, don't they? When we, we get down here and we, we see that Jesus arrives into this text and, he, and these disciples have failed in casting this little, uh, the demon out of this little boy, and they're arguing with the scribes. They're probably arguing about what authority do you have to perform these things or to do these things. The scribes, and they, the, the, the scribes questioned um, the, 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 Jesus' authority to do this. They were certainly questioning the disciples' authority to do this. And the disciples were going, no, 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 we've got the authority to do this. Let me show you we will cast out this demon. And that kind of falls flat on the head, doesn't it? Remember in, in Jesus when the, the paralytic comes down through the roof, and he, he forgives him of his sins. And the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees say to him, on what authority do you think you get to do this? And Jesus says, well, let me show you what authority I have. Get up and walk. It proves the authority he has. And so the disciples' authority is being questioned here by the scribes. And then it isn't backed up by the, the miracle. It's a, it's a bit of an awkward situation that they find themselves in. But why weren't the scribes, I mean the disciples, able to cast out this demon? Why weren't they able to do so? Because it should be surprising to us as we read it that they weren't able to do it. And it certainly was surprising to the disciples that they weren't able to do it. Because in the past, they've been able to cast out demons. We see this in Mark chapter 6, verse 13. It says, And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil those who were sick and healed them. They've had success in the past. This isn't their first rodeo. And there's nine of them. They've each been able to do this in the past. They have done this. So why couldn't they do it this particular case? Well, I think the text shows us at least two reasons. And the first is this. We see it in verse 29. That Jesus seems to say that this is a different kind of demon. This demon is driven out by prayer. And so it seems to suggest to us, and it shouldn't surprise us, that the demonic vary in power, that there are some who are stronger than others. And there is this one is particularly stronger maybe than the ones that they faced off in the past. We even see that this demon responds differently than to the other demons in the presence of Christ. So far in the Gospel, Gospel of Mark, we've seen that when Jesus is there and there is the demonic is present, they seem to cry out, you are holy, the holy one of God, and like fall at his feet and in a sense beg for mercy. But when Jesus enters enters into this scene, the demonic see him, and what does this demon do? It, it violently attacks the little boy, like he's going to give it his last best shot before he knows the ultimate outcome of what's going to happen. There is a nastiness, and of course there's a nastiness to all of them, but there's a nastiness to this demon in that every time this little boy is around water and fire, he tries to cast him into it. It's an awful state that we find ourselves in, but Jesus seems to say here, that this needs a strong faith for this demon to be driven out. And that is what, uh, the second thing is, it seems that what the disciples lack. Jesus says to actually everyone, not just the disciples, he says it to the scribes as well, and to the Father, oh faithless generation, oh you lack faith. You're, you don't have a strong enough faith here. The disciples lack the faith to be able to 
perform this miracle. But why? Why did they lack faith? They had done it before. They've had the faith in the past. Why have they lacked faith? Well, it's difficult to say, but I think it's this. I think that the disciples in this moment have not fallen on, uh, back onto faith and trusting in God, but rather what they have done is that they've fallen back onto experience. That Jesus is not there. This father uh, brings the little boy saying, I brought it to Jesus. I brought, where's Jesus? I want him to heal my boy. You go, well, no, Jesus and some of the chosen few have gone up the mountain, but don't worry, we've got this. We've done this before. We will do it ourselves. And, and you see, here's the thing about experience. Experience can be really good in most situations. But in ministry, experience can be good, but it can also be dangerous. In the sense that what will happen is we can depend on ourselves and our own set of skills rather than, and our experiences rather than depending on God. For the worship leader, the first time he gets up to lead worship here up on stage, it's nerve-wracking. Never done it before. I'm sure John will be able to tell you the first time he did it nerve-wracking and and you that that prayer that worship session was soaked in that worship leader's prayer lord i need you i need you i need you but after a hundred times of doing it having the skills and the talent to be able to play instruments and sing well and knowing how the service works it's so easy to be able to fall back on those things for the children's minister who teaches for the very first time to the children so nervous am i going to get this right Am I going to be able to teach it? Are the kids going to be, under, be able to understand what I'm saying? Seeped in prayer. Just soaked in prayer that, that, that moment. But after doing it for ages, you kind of look at the material. And go, no, I know that story. I'll wing it. Don't worry. They got it. Because you know you can teach. Depending on your own skill rather than on God. And so for the preacher. The preacher is able to stand up and knows how to prepare a sermon. Knows the theology. Knows the illustrations. Knows how to communicate and put it into practice the danger is that you're able to stand up from this pulpit and teach from your own experience and your own strength rather than from God and I feel that the disciples have fallen into this trap that they have not fallen onto their knees in prayer but rather that they have fallen on their own experience to make it through and as a result they fail and they learn a harsh lesson don't they a, a much needed lesson but a real humiliating one to go through. They learn the lesson of John 15 verse 5 that says, I am Jesus talking here. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. From apart from me, you can do nothing. From apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what they learn. And, and sometimes there's, sometimes we hear it. We hear truths being spoken this kind of a truth that you need to depend on God and not yourself. If you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard it. But it is only through experience that it really sinks from the head through the heart. I remember when I was 15 years old, I did my second youth talk that I'd ever done before. The first one had gone relatively well. I thought God was in it. And I got the opportunity to do number two. And uh, the youth pastor came to me with the topic and said, Joe, I'd love to you to preach on this. And I said, his name was Dylan Oldham. I said, Still, don't worry, I've got a topic, God's speaking to me. And uh, I, I got this topic, I put it all together, I practiced it, I ran through it, it was slick, it was good. And I got up and I preached it, or taught it. And those 15 minutes that I taught for, it bombed badly. Oh, I, just, I, I still 
I, I can't even tell you what my third one was. <laughs> but I can tell you what number two was. Because number two was one of the most humiliating moments of my life. There's sometimes as preachers, when we finish preaching, we want to do this. We want to hide behind the pulpit and wait for all of you to leave. And it was one of those moments that it was a youth talk, so there was only one of these. You can't really, you can't really do that. And it was one of those moments in my life that has still, as I thought about it this week, preparing for the sermon, that just scared my heart. It was a lesson that I remembered and will remember for the rest of my life, that in my own strength, I fail. But when God works, things happen. And I want to encourage us this morning that as we consider the practical challenges of your life, that what is required is faith. You can do it in your own strength, but if you want to bear fruit that's going to be lasting and is going to bear the glory for Christ, it's not something that you can do yourself, but depend rather on God. And, and some of you are experienced. You are skilled. You are good. But friends, when we are strong, we find strength in God. But actually, when we depend on our own strength, we are weak. Depend on Him. But the disciples aren't the only ones who lack faith in the story, are they? We've really spoke, or well, the scribes themselves, they lack faith, they don't believe in Jesus at all. But what I want to focus on uh, this, this morning is the, the Father. And what we see inside this Father is a mixture of faith and unbelief. And we see it in our text in verse 29, uh, 21 to 29, and Jesus asked his Father, or asked the Father of the boy, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has... Uh, um, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. And if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cries out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Aren't those comforting words to some of us this morning? I believe, help my unbelief. I'm sure many of us can identify with that feeling of believing but yet doubting. And may I say that that is for most Christians, that is a state that we struggle with. But few Christians don't struggle with the tension of unbelief and faith. Few Christians don't struggle with hope and fear, but most of us have that tension with inside of us as we wrestle for that and now one day there will be a time where doubt and fear will no longer be a part of the Christian experience and that's when we reach glory but until then this is going to be a tension with that is in inside of us our understanding of God and our, our, our love for him and our humility is often defective and mingled with uh, mangled with sin but what are we meant to do with this kind of weak faith this faith that is weak and, and doesn't seem to have much strength behind it. The answer to this is simple. We are to use it. We are to be like this father and ultimately we are to use it. If you wait for your, strength, your faith to be perfect, great and powerful, you'll never use it. But rather we are to take the weak faith that we have and we are to use it in moments. And when we do use our weak faith, even then strength is applied to that faith. Because when we trust Him with the little bit that we've got and He comes through for us, our, our, our faith is strengthened. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. But what are we meant to do with that doubt that's within us? That doubt that seems to be waging war within us. What are we meant to do with that? Well, we are to resist it and pray against it. 
why I say that the average Christian struggles with doubts, Jesus doesn't seem in this text to allow it to stay there, does he? He sees the Father's weak faith, but he also points out his doubts. Jesus challenges it. No, you need to deal with it. And Christian, while we struggle with doubt, there is, there is no need for us to leave it there, but rather we need to overcome that doubt. We need to resist against it. And how do we do that? We spend time in this Word. The doubts that you have, go to Scriptures, find the answers. What are you doubting about the Christian faith? What is in your heart that you are struggling with? What is challenging you that you doubt that God can't overcome in His power? Run to Scripture and you will find the answers that you need. And there might be some uh, apologetic that you are struggling with, like the resurrection of Christ. Is it real? There are amazing works out there that can help you see the logic behind the resurrection and prove that it's true. Run to those things as well. Make sure you do it. But also, like this Father that we find in this text, pray. Run to Jesus and tell Him you're struggling. I believe, but help my unbelief. Sometimes, I, I don't know if, it's, if you are like this as well, that when I struggle with stuff, I try to conceal it within my heart, ignore it, because then I pretend it's not there, and maybe God won't see it either. But Jesus just sees straight through that. He points us out. He knows what you're struggling with. Tell him and ask for the help that you need. Lord, I doubt him that you can help me. Help me to believe that you can. Help me to trust you. Help me for more faith in this area. Strengthen my faith, I pray. Go and do that. But what I'm struck by this father's, what struck me about this father's faith is that it's gotten weaker the longer he spends time around the religious. That he's arrived at the scene and he's asked for Jesus to cast out this demon and the scribes are there and the scribes are probably spewing falsehood about Christ we see all the way back in Mark chapter 13 verse 22 what they say about Jesus is they say oh Jesus uh, Jesus, you have a demon in you Beelzebub, you've got him in you that's how you're achieving this see how comes this dad going I want Jesus to cast out my demon you can just hear them the scribes saying go no no you don't want to do that because he actually has a demon within him and there's a bit of doubt that creeps in. And then the disciples say, don't worry, we've got this. We are the disciples of Jesus. We've done this before. And they try ahead, go ahead and do it. And what do they do? They fail. And this poor father, I feel sorry for him a little. His little bit of faith that he has is weakened drastically. And, and I'm challenged by this as a Christian to know that my failings as a believer in Christ, my, faith, my faithlessness and my lack of faith in God in moments that are difficult, cause others to doubt the person of Jesus. That when I struggle and do things that I should not do, others look at that and go, mm, is Jesus really real? Because if the pastor can't do it, then the pastor acts like that. I'm challenged by that. Now don't hear me wrong. The father is still held accountable for his own lack of faith. You see that? Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. Jesus doesn't say, oh, shame, poor you. The others have made you, led you to this because of their lack of faithfulness. No, no, they are he is challenged to deal with his lack of faith because it's his and his responsibility. And those of you who might be questioning whether or not the Christ Christianity is real and whether Jesus is who he claims is based on Christians, may I encourage you this morning to not look at the sinful Christian for your answers, but rather to look to Scripture and the perfect Christ. 
judge Jesus based on Jesus, not those who follow him. But Christians, while we might not like the fact that our actions cause others to view Christ in a certain way, we can't run from the fact that we carry the name of Jesus with us. We see this in, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. It says, we are the aroma of Christ, uh, of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Later, five verses later in, in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as Though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to him. Whether we like it or not, our actions help people put a perception of who Christ is, either for the good or for the bad. Now, as Christians, what that means for us is that we need to be people who live wholly for Jesus. We live a life of faithfulness to him. We are brazen in our, our, our pursuit of the God's commands and obeying his word. We do not care what the world thinks of us when we are living for Christ, but when we start to live for ourselves, we need to worry. We need to be concerned that our sinful actions and things that we do, our folly and our, the stupid things that we tend to end up doing has something to do with the perception of what people view Christ. We need to be aware of that. And what we need to do is we need to ask daily for God's help. Say, Lord, I know how wicked I am. I know how sinful I am. Would you help me? We pray but for the power of the Holy Spirit to indwell in us and, and that we might have uh, to be able to live in step with the Spirit, that we might have the fruit of the Spirit and that the Spirit would quicken our sanctification so that we might become more and more like Jesus quicker. But what we see here is that we need strong faith we need strong faith to be able to do that so how do we gain strong faith well it seems that it comes through prayer the conversation between jesus and the disciples he drives home this lesson of what has happened he, they ask him why couldn't we cast out this demon and he says this can come only out by prayer by prayer and prayer is what we need in order to strengthen our faith it is through prayer that we get to enjoy the union that we have with Jesus. It is through prayer that we get to grow in our love and understanding of the Father's love for us. It's through prayer that we get to procure the Holy Spirit within our hearts. It's through prayer that we are able to have the Holy Spirit guide us and lead us and strengthen us and encourage us. It is through prayer that we are able to take our big challenges, those practical challenges that we face, and lay it at the feet of God. It's through prayer that we are able to experience an inward peace that comes with knowing that He is with us and for us. It is through prayer that our faith is strengthened. And we need to pray. How's your praying going? Are you praying? Do you take your challenges before God? Because the reality is that there are, Christian, there are things that face the Christian that will vary in difficulty. Some will be easy. They will require little prayer, little knowledge, and little wisdom to overcome. But some of the things that we will ultimately face and be challenged with are going to require a history of faithfulness and prayerfulness. That this is something that we've been doing for ages in order for us to be able to have the faith that required to overcome it. This is something that we need to be doing often. The last thing I want to talk about faith before I move into my final points is this. And I don't want to spend much time on this point, but it says this faith needs to be instilled at a young age. You see, when we read the story, what is the most uncomfortable thing about this story is this, is that this is a little boy. 
if this was an old man or a middle-aged man, it would be sad, but it, it doesn't carry the same punchiness, does it? The fact that this is, from a, this is a boy who's experienced this from his, the start of his childhood is just so difficult for us to, to read. But there's an important lesson for us here this morning. Is that there is this necessity for us as believers to instill in our children faith from a young age. That we need to, from a, the youngest of ages, take them to Jesus to share with them our faith. Because what we notice in this text is that Satan himself is not a, a he, he does not particularly care about what age they are. He's willing to go after a child. He, he, he does that. He's evil like that. He, he does not care about what age they are. He doesn't say, oh, they are so innocent. Let me leave them alone. No, he wants to destroy those who carry the image of God. And he's willing to do so at a young age. And as parents, if Satan is willing to do that, we need to be one step ahead of him. We need to make sure that we are leading our children to Christ, telling them and teaching them about the cross, making sure that they realize that they need salvation through Jesus and Jesus alone, that they need to make this a personal faith of theirs, not just something that mom and dad and we do on a Sunday, but this is something that they need. We need to be teaching them that. And I say that particularly in light of the season that we're in, Christmas. Uh, as we say, it's a wonderful time of the year, and it truly is. But may I beg with you as parents, Please don't make this about a fat man in a red suit or the elf on the shelf. All those things can be fun. I have nothing against them. But may they not be the reason for the season. May Christ be. What a glorious opportunity that we have with the whole world celebrating it, that we get a point where this is about the Savior of the world. And he died for you, and he came for you, and he loves you. Let's make it about them. Let's, and, 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 and not just over Christmas, and not just on Sundays, but this is something that we as parents of our children need to do often and fight for this. So daily we need to lead them to Christ. Daily we need to ask them to make this decision themselves. Do they love Jesus? That's what you need to fight for. J.C. Rao makes this following comment. He says, if young hearts can be filled with Satan, they can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let us strive to do that. But we've got to ask ourselves about the story. It's a bit odd. It's a bit randomly placed, isn't it? Remember, if we consider the Gospel of Mark, what has happened in chapter 8 is there's been the seismic shift in the teaching of Mark. Mark has gone from being... Uh, talking about the glory of the Son of God that is coming. It's talking about the kingdom that is, that is near. Repent and believe in that. Jesus' teaching has been on that. And in all of a sudden, in chapter 8, Jesus starts teaching about the Son of Man needing to suffer and be killed. And that has been a focus so far of Jesus in this text. And suddenly we find the story. Even in, on the transfiguration, which is all about the glory of Jesus, as Jesus is coming down the mountain, he leads it back to the suffering. We see that in verses uh, 12 and 13. He talks about, ah, oh, the Son of Man needs to suffer. And then after the story, what happens is we see that Jesus talks about the suffering again. So how does the story fit in? Is it just randomly put there because it happened? Or does it somehow lead into this grand narrative? And I would like to suggest and say that I think it leads into the grander narrative. Because when we look at the story, we see a massive parallels between this story and the gospel and the suffering of Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus came 
down the mountain from the glorious uh, uh, revelation of his glory down the mountain into a suffering scene. Don't we see that in Christmas? Don't we see Jesus leave the glories of heaven where he is honored and worshiped and comes down into a broken scene of death, suffering, sorrow, and with a demonic rule? Just in the story, what we see is that just like the disciples weren't able to help the boy, the disciples aren't able to stop Jesus from dying on the cross, no matter how hard they try. Just like the disciples didn't have the faith to cast out the demon out of this little boy, the disciples, after the death of Jesus, lack faith. And it's only after the resurrection of Christ is that restored, they want to go back to the fishing boats. Just like the story as well, when we, we see that as Jesus approaches uh, the, the demon and it, it get, things get worse, it starts to uh, violently shake the boy and throw him onto the ground. And what we see is Jesus will cast the demon out of the boy, but it looks like the boy is dead. It looks like ultimately the demon has won. The crowd says he's like a corpse, he's dead. Well, so in the Gospels, what we see is that when Jesus dies on the cross, it looks like he has lost and that Satan has won. Just like in the story, what we see is that Jesus comes along and takes this lifeless boy and raises him again to life. We see in the story of Jesus that he does not remain dead, but he will rise again to life. And just like Jesus tells that demon never to come back ever again, permanently removing that demon from the, this, li this boy's life, so we see with Jesus that Jesus will conquer sin and death and Satan permanently for it never to come back again. And the, just like this boy was innocent, the sadness of the story was that he was innocent. So when we look to the cross, what do we see? We see a Savior who is innocent, who did not deserve to die but died for the sins of the world. And as we hear this story, not only should we be challenged to live a life of faith, but as we hear this story, we are to realize that Jesus suffered for you, that he died on the cross for you so that you might know him and be set free from your sin. Just as Jesus had compassion on this boy, he had compassion on you. And just like you need faith to cast out the demon, so you need to have faith in Jesus for their salvation in him and him alone. I hope the story leaves you with the desire to have faith, but also that you might be struck by the wonderful love that Jesus has for you. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful for this wonderful story. It is incredible as we look to it that we realize that we ourselves have a, a Savior who has suffered so much that you would go through all of that for us, that you would die on the cross for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would fix our eyes on that and that we would be able to see with clarity what you have done for us. And then as we do so, that you would stir faith in our hearts. I pray for those, Lord, that um, don't have much faith in their hearts. Would you uh, st stir up by the power of your Holy Spirit, stir up uh, a stronger faith in them so that they might live for your glory more and more and more, we pray. Lord, would you help us to be a people that long for more of your presence and be a people that don't depend on our skill and our abilities, but depend on you. And we want to pray for our children, Lord, and we ask that we would have children from a young age who are able to see with clarity the wonders of the gospel. 
and that they would see Jesus as their Savior and they would give their hearts to you from a young age, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond uh, to what God has said to you this morning by turning our attentions to the screens. Would you please stand and we're going to, we're going to sing a song.
perfect in all of your ways. You are perfect in all of your ways. To Father, thank you that we can come to you this morning as your children. And Lord, we know that uh, you are able to hold us in your hand and strengthen us when we need it, Lord. And faith is in different places in this room this morning. But wherever it's at, Lord, we ask you to strengthen us. Increase our faith, Father. May we be strong in you in the challenges we have to face. And we're grateful, Lord, to know that your presence and your power is always with us. You are with us, Lord. And would you use our lives to bring glory to your name? Help us to overcome the things in front of us that you will get glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, that's the end of the service. We're going to, um, I think, not have coffee <laughs> under the tent. Uh, that's another new thing because of where things are at. We'd love for you to still hang around a little bit and chat to each other, but there won't be coffee uh, for the next while, and we'll see you again next week. Have a good Sunday.